Hi there. I am so excited to invite you to attend our fourth annual free virtual special education and advocacy conference. We are hosting it here at Ashley Barlow Company in partnership with Rebecca Poe Teaching. And we are so excited for a few new things at this year's conference. The first new thing is that we have not just one, but two different tracks for attendance. For the first time ever, we have created a track that is specific for school staff and teachers. We also still have that traditional track that we intend to be really great for parents and caregivers in the IEP arena. So yes, we have a teacher track and a parent track. On that teacher track, you are going to learn about things like easier data collection, gestalt language processing, behavior reading, and other super hot topics in special education practice, as well as advocacy. On the teacher and caregiver track, you're going to learn about stress management for caregivers using adaptive books, something that I have really kind of um, dove into here at my own house, inclusion advocacy, advocacy strategies, and so, so much more. That free ticket will give you one pass, one access to one presentation per hour on the track that you choose, either that teacher track or the parent track. Of course, if you are not available on January 19th or January 20th when the conference is taking place, you can buy tickets to access the conference on demand. And those tickets, of course, are available at our website, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference slash 2024. Check out the website for more information about ticketing. This year, we also have something super exciting planned. We have decided to make this a two-day event. When I partnered with Rebecca Poe Teaching, I told her that I really feel like school districts, disability organizations, and other community organizations need to start providing trainings that are accessible to teachers, related service providers, administrators, parents and caregivers, and other community members that are interested in IEP support. What if we all attended the same training? What if we all learned information about special education practice, curriculum, how to read evaluations, that kind of stuff, about special education advocacy, how we can collaborate more, how we can work together, and even about special education laws. What if we all attended those presentations and we workshopped them together? So together with Rebecca Poteaching, I have created the Empowered Workshop Series, and we are excited to bring it to your organization or school in 2024 and beyond. If you are interested in having Rebecca and I bring a workshop to you, you can see a preview of the Empowered Workshops on January 19th, the Friday before our main conference programming. For more information about that, either send me a DM or check out the website, again, ashleybarlowco.com backslash conference dash 2024. We hope to see you January 19th and or January 20th and can't wait to connect with you. Hi everyone, welcome to the Ashley Barlow Company Podcast. I'm Ashley Barlow, your host. If you are a parent, a teacher or someone who works at a school, or you're a community member, a volunteer or a staff member in an organization that supports people with special education plans, a coach, a tutor, or even a grandparent, you're in the right place. Sit back with a nice cold glass of lemonade, put on your walking shoes and grab some headphones, roll down the windows and cruise. Ready, set, go. Educate, advocate, collaborate. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Special Education Advocacy Podcast with Ashley Barlow. I'm Ashley Barlow and I'm so happy you're here. Today, I welcome my friend Daphne Corder, who is a dyslexia guru. I want to tell you a little bit about Daphne before we welcome her to today's show. Daphne is a licensed clinical social worker. She has had over 25 years of experience in that role. Daphne has worked in hospitals, foster 
group homes, counseling centers, and outreach centers. She now works exclusively as a special education advocate, um, primarily in the field of dyslexia. Daphne lives in Austin with her husband and two daughters. She does a lot of work for decoding dyslexia. Um, Daphne is a member of COPA, the Council of Attorneys, um, of Parents, Attorneys, and Advocates, and she is a certified advocate through the Institute of Special Education Advocacy, which of course is at Wright's Law, William & Mary's Law School. That's where I met Daphne and we have been friends ever since we met at ISCA. Daphne was actually a speaker at our conference that we had in January of 2021. And unfortunately, the audio cut out on her presentation. We couldn't get it to fix. We don't know why it was happening. Um, but we thought, well, here's a good solution. We'll have her on to the podcast. So if you are listening to the podcast on a podcast platform and you want to be able to see the slides, you can go over to YouTube and you can watch the slides with this podcast on my YouTube channel, or you can also access the slides on my website. We'll put them up there so that you can access and you can follow along as you go. The slides on the website and um, possibly on YouTube, if we can link them that way, are going to be, they're gonna even go on a little bit longer because Daphne's got some really specific resources at the end of her PowerPoint that she wanted to make available to you as well. So with all of that said and done, Daphne, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you, Ashley. I'm so excited to do this because I'm much better sort of in person, even though it's here, you know, sort of in Zoom and we're in different states. But it's, I, I do much better in conversation than I do uh, doing technical work like those PowerPoints. Uh, <laughs> my husband says I'm a, it's a high tech world and I'm a low tech woman. So, <laughs> so I'm sorry about those problems. But um, okay, so let me get started because if not, I'll just take forever here. Um, but I do love, love, love talking about dyslexia and helping other parents understand the sort of that world. And, and I just want them to have as much information as they can, knowing that they're like me, you know, or the way I was early on going, hey, wait a minute, my child was diagnosed they're in school, how do I even know it's going right? How do I know they're doing it right? That's a very common question. And so that's what I'm going to cover here today. What every parent should know about that. I, I have to tell you that when I think I've told you this before, when we first met, um, you were such an incredible wealth of knowledge on dyslexia that in my phone, I put you in there as Daphne dyslexia because I, you know, I didn't know you were at a conference. So you're in my phone still as Daphne Dyslexia. Oh, <laughs> yeah. Okay, so what you oh were supposed gosh. to talk about at the conference is what every parent should know about dyslexia services in school. I'm so excited to get started. Let's hop over to the first slide um, where you kind of are going to tell us what we're going to talk about in today's episode. Right. So. I'm going to talk a little bit about the basics of dyslexia. Some of you all have may have heard about it or maybe you have certain ideas. So I'm just going to talk a little bit about dyslexia and just touch on some of those related disorders that you often see with dyslexia. I'll talk a little bit about how it's diagnosed, what are the things to look for. Um, then I'm going to move on to what do you need to know about the services at school? You know, what are the common problems with dyslexia intervention in schools, what can parents do to spot them, um, and how can you make sure that your child is making pro uh, progress. So again, it's just like the title, you know, how do I know they're doing it right. And today we're not going to be talking about much of this, it's going to be on the website, but I did go into what are my rights, what you need to know about the system in general, what schools you know, should be doing and why sometimes maybe they're not. Um, I, in, in case I don't get to this one thing, I do want to say this because I know there's so many wonderful teachers out there in wonderful schools. 
I'm just gonna I'm just gonna uh, spoil the ending here. It's not because teachers are terrible and administrators are terrible. I am one of those uh, advocates that's gonna tell you right now. It is it's so complicated. There's no conspiracy. It just there's a lot of factors to, that go into why it's so broken in schools. So I, I do want to say that since I'm not sure how much we're going to get through talking uh, yeah. today. And so so definitely know that when I'm talking about these school problems, it, it, it's not with the intent to say that there's, you know, that it, everybody's, you know, hates children and they're all it's a conspiracy against our kids. So important and definitely yes. something that I preach in and out every single day <laughs> on every single episode. So yeah. I'm grateful that you said that. Yeah. Tell us about this darling little girl and why you are a dyslexia advocate. Well, I have seen, you know, you said why you do what you do and this is why I do what I do. It's um, for my daughter, Lauren. She was identified, well, I knew there were problems early on, but it wasn't till third grade because of some of those problems and issues, we didn't really get a clear cut diagnosis until then. And so I just wanted to um, show you sort of my reason. And I know for all of you, that's why you're here. That's why you're listening in. That's why you're watching the slides, trying to get more information. That's the main reason we do it. Even though I do a lot of advocacy in a macro level, I mean, really, when we're going into those schools, we got our parent hat on and that's why we're doing it for our kids. Yep, that's exactly right. And, and if you show the next, yeah, yes. And if you show the next slide, cause she still doesn't look like that. <laughs> this is her helping me out. And we had a conference um, in my hometown. Um, I help out with another nonprofit called Dyslexia Smart. And so she came out, it was kind of cute that background there, everybody got to put why they do what they do, why they were helping out, why they were donating. And it was for, they got to put up for maybe a teacher that they, that was really, you know, special and, and focused on literacy. And then maybe another family member. I know I have a sister with severe dyslexia and my brother also has it. So it's in our family. It's very hereditary. So we have, we have lots of other reasons too, but you know, I love that idea. And uh, probably a lot of my listeners are hosting seminars like this because they're involved in, in various other organizations and that kind of thing. I love the idea of why are you here? What are you doing here? And having people put stuff up. That's a neat thing to add. Yeah. Um, yeah. And we've got our pretty Miss Lauren um, there. Yes. So let's kind of dive in here. Tell us what dyslexia is. Okay, so dyslexia, and I'm reading off the International Dyslexia Association Board of Directors, you know, they came out in uh, November 12, uh, 2002, they still have this definition. It, dyslexia is a specific learning disability that's neurobiological in origin. It's characterized by difficulties in accurate and or fluent word recognition and by poor spelling and decoding abilities. These difficulties typically result from a deficit in the phonological component of language that's unexpected in relation to other cognitive abilities and the provision of effective, uh, effective classroom instruction. Secondary consequ uh, consequences may include problems in reading comprehension and reduced reading experience that can impede the growth of vocabulary and background knowledge. Now, I'm not gonna read all the slides to you, but I did wanna read that and I wanted to highlight I, in the slides I have it highlighted. There's some keywords you have to listen closely to. Number one is that it is a specific learning disability and that's a legal, that's a legal term defined in IDEA, uh, Individuals for Disabilities in Education Act. Um, sometimes you'll see other terms that dyslexia in the medical world may call it something different, the DSM, but it is a specific learning disability. The other keyword, it's neurobiological, okay? So it is something that we know is in the makeup of our, our brains, the neuro, neurobiological. Um, it is not something that, and we'll go into that later, 
uh, about it not being a visual problem. It's not an eye problem, but it is neurobiological. So it's not something that someone can help. It was, it's something that you're born with. Um, it is, it, in general, it's going to be that the difficulty with fluent word recognition, poor spelling, and decoding. And it's unexpected. So what's interesting about it is that there isn't really a yes or no where you have a test where you look at a number and it says that somebody is dyslexic. It's very much into this, um, you're looking at a bunch of different scores and you see this sort of average cognitive abilities, although you, in order, you could have dyslexia and not, and have a lower sort of IQ, but in general, it's this sort of unexpected is the key word, is that you have these other strengths that should allow you to, you know, fluently read the word or have the abilities at least, and you're, you know, there's this disconnect there. So uh, Sally Shaywitz always says it's a, it's a, it's a weakness in a sea of strengths, you know. Um, and then, this, yeah, yeah. So, and the secondary consequences, of course, are the reading comprehension, vocabulary, background knowledge. And we'll get into that later in the slides. Um, obviously, if you're not reading very much and you're struggling to read, you're not going to comprehend what you're reading. And so, of course, that's where you, uh, you know, it, it goes on and on. And then you hate reading. And if you hate reading, you don't learn new words and gather background yeah. knowledge. Yeah. That unexpectedness is something that I oftentimes describe using the bell curve. And so what I do is I say, okay, our aptitude, our general aptitude is our IQ. If we get a good IQ score, that tells us how we should perform on other areas. And then when we look at, we know that there are certain markers on both the cognitive testing and academic testing that will tell us if we should be looking for dyslexia. And if those are different than IQ, if, they're, if they fall significantly below IQ or kind of in general altogether below IQ, then we can say, okay, so slow processing speed, um, working memory, reading, decoding, um, nonsense word decoding, those kinds of things, if those are not matching up with IQ, then we ought to start thinking about dyslexia. So I love that you say, well, that the IDA and this definition has said that it's unexpected. I think that is great. And you've got that on the right. slide. Yes, the next slide, Ferrier and Shaywitz, it, it just, it's showing how a typical reader, you know, they're going to progress with reading at the same rate as where their IQ would be. Whereas a dyslexic reader, this slide shows this big gap. So the IQ is in one higher area and then the reading is much lower. So it's that unexpected. Why isn't it following that path? And then and and the gap widens. Right. And the next slide, remember how I said neuro biological in nature, um, these are just, it's just a slide to show how um, in the, when we were able to start doing a lot of functional MRI studies, so that for those that don't know, it's an MRI while they're actually testing and seeing the, the uh, activity in the brain while you're doing, they're studying a function, you know, while you're reading or, you know, uh, doing whatever it is they're trying to measure. Well, even for uh, dyslexics, there's a different part of their brain that is lighting up. You, you know, they're using, it's coming from different areas of the brain. And so that's why I wanted to show that slide uh, because for so long people thought it was, you know, maybe effort or other issues, but you're really, it really is in the brain. It's a different pathway. Yeah, so when I first read, um, like within the first 20 pages of the first Sally Shaywitz book that I read, which by the way, if you don't know Sally Shaywitz, you should look her up oh, and buy her book yes. um, and just go to YouTube and find some of her speeches and that kind of stuff because man alive is she yes. smart. This was so mind blowing to me because, you know, there are these misperceptions that it's a visual disability or that there's, um, you know, it's, it's an intelligence thing or something like that. And Growing up in school, I always wanted to be a teacher, so I've always been um, curious about education, and my mom's a teacher. We definitely thought that dyslexia had something to do with intelligence, and this, you know, while I had 
educated myself otherwise when I first saw this I was like oh yeah I mean this that totally explains it and substantiates right that thought um right what about kind of that neurological part like what are these parts of the brain that are impaired um that are not impaired with children that don't have dyslexia well I wouldn't even though the slide it's one of Shaywitz, they say the non-impaired, just meaning like a typical brain, when you're reading, it's going to be from that left side. And what we're finding is that, you know, with a child with dyslexia, you know, they're having activity going on on the right side. And so there's just different pathways that they show moving uh, you know, going around the brain to get there. And like I said, y'all, if you look at the slide, you'll kind of see the, the areas that light up. And again, this is just to show you um, that it is something in the brain, it's neurological, and that's what a typical child with dyslexia would be, you know, where it would look. Now, this slide, um, I love it, and I asked, um, uh, uh, Tim Conway, actually just like the comedian, but he actually has a program uh, for dyslexia and he always uses these slides. They come, he did a lot of work with Torgensen. Um, Y'all will read a lot on, if you read anything about it, dyslexia and studies, they will um, show a lot of his work. But there was a lot of studies and, it, and it, it just, this slide that I'm showing right now shows how important it is to get the intervention and close the gap because the gap is very narrow in kinder first grade. So why do I wanna show this to you? Why do I wanna tell you about the importance of, of that early identification and the reason, well, the reason I want to tell you that is because you could be in school and they say, oh, they're just a little bit behind. Oh, that's okay. They're not that far behind. We don't need to worry about it. But if you don't act er early enough, one year behind, or they're only six months behind, by the time they get to fifth grade, it's going to be a two or three year difference. You learn to read up until third grade. And once you're in third grade, you're reading to learn. So that process needs to get done and should be done by third grade, or you're going to be behind the whole group and it'll be exponential. The gap will get wider and wider later on. And you'll see that in the, in the testing. You know, you may even have, maybe you've done some testing early on and the comprehension and all that, maybe they say, oh, well, the testing showed they're just a little bit behind. But if they are, if they have dyslexia and they're struggling with reading, that gap is only going to get bigger. And we call that the Matthew effect, right? So yeah, that's, the, that's right. The right. slide, if you don't have access to the slide, it's kind of like two cars going up a roller coaster. And the um, the children with typical reading abilities are just going up on a trajectory and actually it kind of swoops up as like a bird taking flight or something like that. And then the line of um, that shows reading of children with dyslexia is much more flat. Now there still is a progress, but the, the slope of the progress is more flat. And so what happens is the gap widens between the children with dyslexia and their typically performing peers. And then as a result of that, we know that we also get other things that are secondary to that dyslexia that oftentimes are just a result of frustration, which right. is one of the reasons why parents really, really, really start to step in because they say, it's not you, honey, you're frustrated and I get it. So right. that right. becomes really, really significant, right? Yeah. Right. Well, and statistically, one of the slides, I was checking to see if I have it in a future slide, but if you are in the, if you're in first grade and you're in the, in phonological awareness, if you're in that 20th percentile, you're never going to get back. Most kids don't ever if you're that far behind statistically the chances of you getting on level with other kids unless you have remediation is not going to happen and Shaywitz also talks about it in her book um you're just 
you may see every year and your teacher may be saying they're getting better, but they always have that gap. Right. And so it's not about just showing a slight improvement. It's about actually closing the gap. Narrowing the gap. And that's a really big right. thing. That's something, you know, you, like the title of this is, you're going to talk about this later, but how do we know if they're doing it right? So they'll show progress. Well, progress is great. Right. Expecting progress. Children with dyslexia make progress. We want to know if we're narrowing that gap because eventually we've got to get as close to caught up as we can get is compared to our typically performing peers. Right. Let's talk while we're still Oh, go ahead. Oh, no, yes, the risk factors with dyslexia. Talk about the risk factors. You know, we're still kind of talking about like the profile of somebody with dyslexia. So what are risk factors that are associated with dyslexia? Okay, first of all, all of you out there, if you have anyone in your family with dyslexia, there is a very high chance, it's 40, 50% chance that you're going, you know, maybe if you as a parent had it, you might have a child that has it. And sometimes you may have had a mild case and your child may have a severe case. You may have had a severe case, your child has, you know, a mild case. So there is, there is a range that, you know, some can have a milder case of it and some more severe but it is very genetic. So know that there's a family history. If you have an aunt and uncle that you knew, you know, and your child's having trouble, that should cause you to act. Um, And to also let the school know, because what someone might think is, well, they're just maybe a little bit behind. You get all this other information about the child like ooh, but she's behind but then also there's a family history and then of course like I I have on this slide also early language uh difficulties so you know like my daughter had trouble with her articulating her r's and you know they're so it's so cute when they're little and you love that they can't pronounce it right but you know if they're doing that past a certain point that's an oral language issue and that's a marker to tell you that something's going on so we're going to have that family history or a language um, difficulty identifying and manipulating individual sounds and words so again that's that pronunciation uh, challenges remember remembering letter names or connecting sounds to letters um, have you ever had remember how you clap when you have the sound and they're trying to follow the syllables counting the clapping do you remember that yeah like you go Daphne or yeah and you could tell they don't really know they're just kind of clapping right. whatever you know so I, okay. we, Jack does that you know Jack has such an expressive language dis- delay and he's actually praxic and he'll say like I went blah, blah, blah. and I'll say okay can you tell me what that is in some other way and sometimes he can say like red and he'll show me like his shirt and then I'm like oh an apple you know or something like that but he's gotten much better about it but he still will go with his finger or like clap out and I'm like okay I see you're really playing with syllables but I have no idea what you're saying (laughs) I know I know so that that's going to be one of them of course you know assuming this is uh if you're even looking at trying to identify somebody a little older you know, they're going to have trouble reading, spelling words accurately, you know, that is also could be a sign. Um, They avoid reading. Um, Maybe they have inaccurate or slow or a language reading fluency, difficulty with note taking, written production, that's going to go into a little bit of the dysgraphia that I'll talk about. But these are, these are just some risk factors, some signs, um, sometimes rhyming is is troublesome. They have a hard time rhyming. They have a hard time uh, manipulating words to change them to other words. If you put fat, hat, cat, you know, they have that trouble if you ask them to do that. Yeah, it's like but, the playing with words thing. I always tell parents, right. if your child has trouble playing with words, then first of all, you need to play with words more. You need to do the Dr. Seuss. You need to do the right. wheels with the phonemes and all of that stuff. But Um, that tells us that we might have some kind of disorder. And in my conference, Michelle Moore talked, she's a speech therapist and talked a lot about that phonological processing piece and the language piece to it, which is so 
important. So yes. I yes. Love this. your next slide is really, really helpful. So it's titled what most experts agree regarding dyslexia. So we've got that neurological disorder piece to it. Um, we've got the poor reading and spelling that we've already talked about, but talk about that lifelong condition because so many people um, think about, oh, well, you know, I did, I did interventions and now my child can read and so we don't need to continue to do anything. And I think it's really important that we address that. Right. It's something that you can have remediation for, but it's not something that's ever going to go away. You may have learned how to um, you know, get around that issue. Um, and you've learned how to attack, you know, you're learning how to read and, and spell in a way that probably a typical person in school, you know, they didn't require that level of intensity to learn how to sound out or spell or work on words. So it is, it is lifelong. And of course, if you didn't get remediated, you're going to see a lot of that in their spelling. You know, there's a lot of adults that um, uh, suffer from, you know, having to use assistive technology to help them in their letter writing and uh, other things. If you all haven't seen uh, Rethinking Dyslexia, the big picture, or the big picture is the title, and then it's Rethinking Dyslexia, and it's a Shaywitz movie. And it is amazing. You can get it on YouTube. You can get it on Netflix. It's just over an hour. And I tell a lot of my families to watch that and to eat, watch it with their kids and watch it with the grandparents yeah. because it's people telling their stories and it helps you understand it. I don't think I'm going to watch it. Yeah, yeah, it's really good. Okay. The other, the last thing I put on there is that most of them will have, uh, you know, they will have intact or even advanced, advanced cognitive skills. So most of them will have an average IQ, although it can be comorbid with other disabilities, but most, most kids with dyslexia are going to have an average IQ and some even higher. And that's where we use the term twice exceptional. So yes. they have some scores very high in one area and lower in the others. Yes, which is not uncommon. Right. Um, so this is that Sally Shaywitz quote, dyslexia yes. is an island of weakness and a sea of strengths. And that kind of goes into that, um, that, that piece of 2E or, you know, the idea that the deficit really is in reading alone in the case of dyslexia. Right. Um, in the case of other specific learning disabilities, that's why we call it specific, because it is a learning disability that is specific to one right. process, not to general intelligence or aptitude. Right. Um, right. So what about dyslexia testing? Here we go. Okay. So about the testing, it's important for you to know, like I said in the beginning, there's not one test that you have the test, it gives you a score, and then it says they have it or they don't. Okay, there's still a lot out there. You know, we have a lot of the screeners are really good at, at kind of raising a flag. Um, and a lot of states now have uh, dyslexia screeners. But when you get a full evaluation, it really requires skill from the licensed school psychologist or whatever psychologist you're going to. They have to do, of course, the cognitive testing and then the academic testing. And the academic testing has to have additional dyslexia-specific uh, subtests and, and scores like they're, that really dive deep into those areas that will pick up the dyslexia. So, I, I mean, even Woodcock-Johnson and some of those that have been around for a while, they even have a, a, a whole section now of their testing that says, oh, this is our dyslexia panel. This is how you're really going to identify the numbers and we're going to add these subtests. So, but there's also other ones like the GORT, the CTOP. You might hear some of these, the FAR. Just know that when you're in school, make sure that number one, that person has tested and knows how to test and look for dyslexia. And you just make sure you say, oh, I heard one time, you know, that you're going to do all the dyslexia testing too, right? You know, because if you just do the regular full evaluation, you could miss 
some of those subtests that would just scream out, you know, this person has uh, dyslexia. Some of those kids, especially the, the smarter they are, the harder sometimes it is to pick it up because they've memorized so many words. Right. And so sometimes it's, they're stealthy. And unless you know how to get around it, unless you're making them sound out nonsense words, you know, if you're just giving them a list of words to read out and they've memorized everything, you know, uh, or if the, it's not a time, some tests are timed, some aren't. So you've got to kind of mix it up, right. you know, and, and so just make sure the person that does the testing has experience in that and know that it's, they, they need to look, they need to show you the subtests. You can't just average out the scores because they'll just yeah. look average. And with eligibility, kind of the big um, criterion for getting right. that coveted IEP in specific learning disabilities, you know, it's so funny. I, I was just in my lab last week, we were talking about evaluations and eligibility. And I said, it's so interesting to be a special education attorney. And as you know, I go to meetings. So I act as an advocate in some um, ways, not, I'm not the kind of attorney that just files due process. So I do a lot in the IDD communities. Well, of course, in those communities, people are like, I don't want cognitive testing. I don't want for you to put me in a disability category that's too significant. That means my child is too impaired because then, um, you know, there's this misnomer that that will drive placement, which is inaccurate. But sadly, it happens right. in schools, predetermination of eligibility, and then they go to a self-contained classroom and blah, blah, blah. And then in the dyslexia community, it's like, please test, please do more tests, please identify, please get more and more yeah. deeper into the things. And so, you know, it's like I have to take off one hat and put on another hat. I did want to point one thing out, and that is if you get to a meeting and, you know, particularly if you're going to an eligibility meeting, look at your state's. Um, eligibility planning form and look to see, okay, so they're going to ask for cognitive testing and academic testing. I don't know what my school has. I don't know if they have the Woodcock Johnson or if they're going to apply the Wyatt or whatever the academic test is. You can get to that meeting, ask the questions and say, now I've heard that there are dyslexia specific profiles or subtests or um, batteries that need to be run. Does that particular test have that? You can ask it generally like that. But the other thing is you can come home after the meeting and say, okay, they're going to do the Wyatt. I'm going to type in Wyatt academic test. Okay, now I know it's not spelled W-Y-A-T-T. It's yes. W-I-A-T. Okay, cool. Then go into that company's website to see what it says about dyslexia because oftentimes not even the, the school people, yes. said before, it's not really their fault. They don't even know that that exists. And so they might right. be answering one thing and not know that the information's there also, right? Right. And again, you can get an independent educational vow. So even if you read it and something's not right, or they don't really, you know, just go with your gut and, and, and ask for that uh, independent evaluation. They, you don't have to know all about testing and you don't have to give a response. You know, this is why I disagree and this and that. I mean, by law, they can't even you don't have to give a reason why you're disagreeing. Um, you just have to, you know, but you have the right to go and get a, an outside, a, a second opinion. And if you get that IEE, the district has to pay for it. So that's yes. a big piece to it. So yes. continuing on with early identification, I love this slide and I think we can probably zip through it. As you yeah. said, a third grade, a child is reading to learn. Um, that early identification piece is really key to um, kind of uh, limiting that gap, um, right. you know, eliminating the gap if possible. Um, and dyslexia can be diagnosed as early as age five, you know, right. having been raised by a teacher, I think my mom used to say third grade, like you can't identify dyslexia until third grade. And obviously that's not true. We can actually start though to notice traits of a child with dyslexia far before five, yes. you know, we can notice that um, inability to rhyme and kind of, like I said, like inability to play with language, so to speak, right? Right, right. And a lot of states, like I said, are doing um, screeners that will do that. Um, they're doing them in kinder and first grade. So 
you, we that. know now, we'll, a few slides down, we'll talk about some of the myths. But I do have a few stats on this next page, just that, you know, 70% of below average readers in first grade will remain below average readers in eighth grade. So this is these, and I just kind of post where some of that data is from, but it's, it, you know, that's why you've got to do it early. You've got, they're going to keep struggling. 65% of fourth graders are reading below grade level. That, that has to do with the NAEP. I don't know the national, what it, oh my gosh, I don't, the NAEP. Well, it, about 10 years ago, it was during Bush, I think, where they had said, look, we got to check reading, the reading abilities of our kids in this country. Um, and so every two years, every state has to report and see how kids are doing by fourth grade. So assuming they've gone through that third grade to make sure it's they like know the how report to card, the nation's yeah, it's report the, card. Yes. It's the nation's report card to see about literacy and reading. Guys, can you believe in our country? It's it's crazy that 65% of fourth graders, so at the beginning of fourth grade, they're not even functionally literate. So, and whatever we're doing isn't working because we've been taking that data and it's just, it, it's not getting any better. So, um, and of course, a lot of them are from low socioeconomic backgrounds, unfortunately. And then I think a lot of times, yeah. And I will say one thing, it's not that, you know, from that background, somehow they don't, uh, you know, there's more cases of dyslexia. Really, I'm going to say something here. I, you might hear in the dyslexia world, a phrase that says, oh, dyslexia is my superpower. Well, I say dyslexia is your superpower only if you have the money to remediate it. If not, it's your worst nightmare because it's really tough. It's really tough when you at such an early age can't follow along with the other kids. I know that for, you know, for my child in third grade, she wasn't identified. They had told me I didn't know how to read the testing at the time. And they said that she didn't have dyslexia and it just kept getting worse. Of course, then I started then I thought it was a vision problem and spent $8,000 on vision therapy and did all these other things um, before I found out that it actually was dyslexia. But, you know, she, by then she was saying, mom, I hate myself. I wish I were dead. I'm so stupid. You know, it's, it breaks your heart. I mean, we're, we're a happy family. We all loved each other. We thought we could just you know, we just couldn't believe that that was something that we would even have to deal with. So here was a, a child with dyslexia. And now by third grade, she has dyslexia and anxiety, you know, yeah. from that. And so then you don't even know what, which one to fix first, you know, it's so overwhelming, but it is, it's about, it, it really creates low self-esteem, shame. Um, some of the kids will start acting out in school. Um, you know, they just internalize all of that. And so it, it, it's really a crisis and we need to, we need to do something about it. And so that's statistically what happens, but the thing that always, and, and that is just devastating. I mean, right. oh, it's devastating. Another thing that is so, so prevalent to me is the inability to escape in a book, the inability to go get information in a book, the inability right. or the struggle to use literature the way that they're typically performing peers use literature. You know, in this pandemic, I, I'm a reader. I've always been a reader. I try to alternate fiction and then something for work. Um, and I try to read two or three books per month in a busy lifestyle. That's pretty much, I, I, would, I will be a voracious reader again, um, but that's a lot of reading. And in this pandemic, I have realized how important it is for me to read fiction to like, go out, be in somebody else's life, be someplace else, even if it's like not even positive. Right now I'm reading Four Winds about the Great Depression. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and, but it's like, I need that escape. And if you can't access that, you're also losing the benefits of 
just plain literacy, which I think is significant, maybe something that we can't like put a hammer on. You well, know? and I'm going to add to that, that, um, like I said, you know, I've been a clinical social worker for many years, and I have worked in the field of, you know, I've done counseling before and worked with kids in foster care. I will tell you that my clients now have so many stories. I've heard more stories of, of children hating themselves, wishing they were dead, hearing that word. How is it that as a social worker at 50, I'm hearing all these people tell me about their kids want, you know, hating themselves and, and doing all this stuff. And yet all those years of counseling, I may have had one suicidal, you know, client and here it's it, uh, that learning disability, that shame. It's so sad. It's heartbreaking and not just for the escape, but I remember one time there was a child in seventh grade and he couldn't make brownies with this dad. Can you imagine? He couldn't read the box on yeah. the brownie recipe. And so it's little things like that, that you have no idea how that's a reminder to them every day in seventh grade, not being able to make a package of brownies because he couldn't that's read. Right. right. And that's the access to literacy that we don't have. Yeah. Um, I, and, and I'll tell you one other story to just to show you in everyday life, we don't think about this. I had another child in first grade who uh, was in vacation Bible school and they all went up to read a little verse, you know, God loves us or whatever. And she walked up there and then started bursting out crying because she wouldn't, she couldn't read. Maybe it was third. I guess she was probably in third grade because it was when she should have been able to read, but it was vacation Bible school. And she ran off and her grandmother said, oh my gosh, I've got to get help for her. You know, so it's the everyday life. Y'all need to hear that how important it is and how that affects our self-esteem. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, huge, huge. Yeah. So, okay. Myths. You've got some great yes. and truth. Yes. Here. And I'll do this quickly because I know we're, we'll never get through it all. So the next few ones I'll go by quickly. So one dyslexia, this is a myth that you can use cover overlays and vision therapy. You cannot use cover overlays. There is this one strange condition called, I think it's pronounced Arlene syndrome or, or Erlen syndrome, that apparently the overlays are something that they use in, in that, with that disability. It's, it, it, I've never even known anyone with it, but basically that's not, it, you, the cover overlays won't work. The uh, vision therapy does not work. Even the American Society of, ophthalmologists have put out a statement, hey guys, stop doing vision therapy for dyslexia. <laughs> okay. The other thing no. is, so that's one. Okay, the other thing is that you can't have dyslexia if you're gifted. So, well, they're doing fine, all their grades are good, you know, so they there's no way that they need help because they're obviously doing fine, their grades are okay, um, he's too smart. Well, of course, that's not true that we use the term twice exceptional and they could, they really struggle and, and, and it's, it's a lot harder not to mention that, you know, sometimes the grades are good because they've had them repeat everything 10 times and retake a test. And there are other little sneaky ways that sometimes they can hide it. The like other thing is reversing letters or transposing letters. Yeah, that's a myth too. Um, I mean, you can, there are people that, that have done that. You can see that, but you can see that in a young child, very young age, they could be doing that, um, you know, early on. But the actual, uh, the issue of dyslexia, again, is not a visual processing deficit. It is something that, that they're just, um, it, 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 you know, that's just not the, those are just sort of those myths that they're going to write backwards and we yeah. need to broaden that. Doesn't mean they don't have that, but it just means that that, you know, we've got to start learning the new stuff about it. Um, the other thing is, okay, if I just read to them, if I just do tutoring, this is the one that breaks my heart. A child could be in tutoring for years and and they think if I just keep reading to them, reading, and they're they're going to read after me, and 
you know, doing the tutoring, there is a certain type of intervention that we know that you have to use with somebody with dyslexia. And so if you don't have that special training, that is not going to work. It is not just sitting there and kill and drill. Yeah. Yeah. That's not what's going to work. We can't just right. memorize the shape of words because then we get into science class and we have to understand how to chunk words. We have right. To, right. Like dyslexia, the word itself has D-Y-S in it. Well, D-Y-S is in a lot of other things as is D-I-S, which is very similar and has a similar meaning. Right. So we need to be able to do that hunking and chunking and playing around with words and right. words and that sort of thing in order to actually read for information. I told you it was going to be awesome. Isn't Daphne so incredibly knowledgeable and helpful when it comes to dyslexia? I am just so grateful for her knowledge and the fact that she's willing to share it with us. So that is a kind of abrupt ending to part one of this podcast. I'm not sure. I think it might end up to be three parts. Um, but next week, also on Tuesday, part two will drop. In part two, we talk about comorbidity. So what other conditions are common when dyslexia occurs? We spend some time talking about ADHD, dyscalculia, dysgraphia, and other things. The statistics on comorbidity on conditions that um, arise when dyslexia is also um, present in a child's profile are really amazing. And Daphne's got some really good information about what to do if you suspect that your child has dyslexia and some other condition as well. So um, tune in next week. And then in part three, we're going to start to dive into what do we do about dyslexia? How do we address it in schools and elsewhere? Um, and how do we know if this school is doing dyslexia interventions right? So, so helpful. Um, I'm looking forward to continuing to get into this with Daphne.